0: So you can keep Proverbs chapter 1 and 2 open as we come to make our way through it this evening. We're thinking tonight about the call of wisdom, the call of wisdom. Have you ever felt yourself pulled in two different directions? Now for some of you with little children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews, that could quite literally be the case. Sometimes one on one arm. One on the other arm, each wanting to pull you away to whatever it is that they think they need you for or need to show you urgently. But even if there's there's no one pulling on our arms, we can be left sometimes with that same feeling. Sometimes the choice is between two equally good, beneficial courses of action. Do we move house or do we stay where we are? Do I take the job I've been offered or stick with the job that I have? Do we go to that restaurant or the other restaurant? All good choices. It doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't matter Uh, on some levels which we take unless we're making a very big life change, moving to somewhere else, taking a job that will uh, drastically change our our lifestyle or or our daily routine or the demands upon us. Uh, But equally good choices. Other times, however, the choice, though it is still difficult, is between the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness, between what is right and what is wrong, between holiness and sinfulness. And even though it's between those two things, which we might know in our minds, there should only be one right decision. The choice is still difficult. We began the book of Proverbs last week, and we saw that the starting point for a wise life A life that will ultimately be blessed and joyful and purposeful. The starting point is the fear of the Lord, verse 7. And and verse 7 really still informs much of what we'll consider together this evening. So we need to (coughs) have it uh, filed away or uh, up on on a little sticky note in our mind, so to speak, as we begin this evening. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. What is that? Well, we could spend a whole sermon on it, but uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson said fear of God is a reverence for the divine being, an awareness of the divine presence, and a regard for the divine rule. A reverence for the divine being, an awareness of the divine presence. And a regard for the divine rule. In other words, friends, it means to live with a constant concern for the worship of God and the word of God. A constant concern for the worship of God and the word of God. Nothing is more important to us than bringing glory to him in our work, in our families, in our church. And of course, we know it's only possible to bring glory to God in these ways if first and foremost... We have salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. (coughs) But our commitment to the fear of the Lord is tested virtually every hour of every day because we live in a foolish world that does not fear the Lord as it should. And it's as though, if, if you can picture this, if this makes sense, it's as though two paths wind their way through our lives every day. Try to imagine that. Two tracks making their way through your kitchen, through your living room, through your office, through your school. Two paths on your phone screen. Two paths on your television screen. And day by day we have to choose between these two paths as we make our way through those places. One is the path of foolishness, which is sin. The other is the path of wisdom, which is Christ and His Word. And in Proverbs, sometimes these two options are described as like different people calling us to follow them. Particularly in the first nine chapters of the book, we see that happening. The question is, who are we going to listen to? Whose call are we going to answer? Which path are we going to take? I want to think first of all this evening about the call of the world, the call of the world, and this is chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. Chapter 1, verses 8 to 19, the call of the world. Verse 8, look at verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Another of the themes of Proverbs is that it's a book of instruction and guidance passed down from a father to a son, from parents to children. One of the assumptions of Proverbs, and indeed one of the assumptions of the vast majority of cultures and societies in human history, with the exception of our own, of course, in the last few decades, one of the assumptions is that one of the wisest things a child or a young adult can do is listen to the advice of wise parents. For much of human history, children were educated by being shown. Yes, by listening and receiving instruction, but receiving that instruction in the context of learning to do the things that their parents also do, just the everyday things of life. And Proverbs begins here by emphasizing to us the need for children to listen and to obey their parents, assuming that their parents, of course, are wise and godly themselves. This, of course, is part of the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. Honor your father and your mother and there's a promise attached that you may live long in the land. And that command is repeated and amplified throughout the, the, the scriptures. Come to the New Testament, Paul says in Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Boys and girls and young adults in a society that encourages you. I mean, this is every single Disney film is. The parents are confining the child and the child needs to head for the horizon and ignore uh, all the the traditions of their parents. In a world that is telling you that you already know better than your parents, God's word says, listen to and obey and heed your parents. And here in Proverbs, the writer says that listening to and obeying your parents, it's like a garland on your head. Uh, You think of the garland... uh, uh, don't know if it still happens nowadays. Probably not in the Olympics, but in in the ancient world, the winners of the Olympic games they would get a, a garland, sort of a flower wreath, put on their head, or or a or a crown put upon their head. Where he says it's like a pendant for your neck, a, a beautiful piece of jewellery. Uh, ladies, maybe someone has given you a beautiful necklace, uh, and it's a treasured possession. What he's saying is that to to listen to the instruction of your parents, it's like It elevates, it accentuates all that you are. It it adds to who you are. It, It accentuates your virtue. In other words, it's worthwhile. It's important to obey your parents. And in particular here, at this juncture in Proverbs, the father and the mother are concerned that their child ignore the call of the world. Look at verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Notice that word entice. In the original, it has the sense of attracting someone gullible. Someone inexperienced. Not, not someone necessarily silly or, or, or stupid, but just someone who doesn't have the experience yet. Who, who needs to gain that, that real world experience. Someone who won't realize, who won't be able to Think through the consequences of their decision. And the parents are warning their children about these people. Don't have time to develop it, but, but just in passing, parents were reminded here, aren't we, of our responsibility? Ch- children come to the point of responsibility as well. If they grew up, if they have not listened to the advice of parents, particularly within the covenant atmosphere, the covenant of grace into which The children of believers are born and they are foolish and they need to repent of that foolishness. But parents, likewise, we we have a responsibility. We are our children's primary caregivers and and, and instructors as we prepare them for life in this world. That's why at the very least, bringing them to worship and family worship and just the daily, I've said this before, but just the daily teachable moments in the ordinary course of life Bringing God's word into the conversation, bringing words like sin and obedience and righteousness and what would Jesus say and what would Jesus do, bringing those things into the ordinary moments of life, on the run home from school or heading out to football or whenever it might be. But that's we'll, we'll perhaps explore that for another time. But notice here that the parents are warning their child against. Sinners who would entice them. And in verses 11 to 14, essentially what the parents describe to their son is the enticing offer of sinful gain. Of somehow taking advantage of others to make easy money, to to selfishly exploit other people for your own benefit. That's what the parents are warning their child against. Notice how the offer will sound so inviting. Verse 13 We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Verse 14. We will all have one purse. Notice the camaraderie here. The the, the sense of, oh, come on. We're all in this together. This will be great. Uh, And it's not even that they perhaps necessarily, they think they're going to get away with it. It's just the fun of doing it. It's the thrill of setting out and doing something reckless and risky. Oh, just whatever happens, happens. We're all in it together. Sure, you only live once. And there's excitement and thrill and allure about this. The parents warn the son to reject the call of sinners. Verses 17 to 18 give us the picture of a net being spread for a bird. There's no point laying out the net in full view of the bird. You're wasting your time. And yet the parents are saying ultimately that these fools, they're, they're going to get caught up in their own net. Having tried to exploit and steal and ruin others. They're going to ruin themselves. Look at verse 18. These men lie and wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes, the way, it takes away the life of its possessors. Sin leads to death. And so what we have here, first and foremost, friends, ultimately is a warning to resist the peer pressure of the world. Young people, and again, boys and girls who are here this evening, and those of you who are older as well, teenagers, this is of course, particularly relevant for you, but not just for you, for adults as well. Our world is full of cries to make easy money, to join in reckless behavior, we're provided with offers each and every day to enjoy ourselves and not worry about the consequences. Sure, put on a wee bet. The rest of us are doing it. It's great crack. What's, what's the harm, really? It's your money. Come on out for a drink. The rest of us are doing, us, are doing it. What's the harm, really? Eighteen's just a number. Don't be worrying about accounting for every pound and penny. Do you really think anyone else in the office is doing that? Or anyone else in your line of work is doing that. The opportunities are endless to avoid the way of wisdom. To follow the call of the world. To live for the things that this world claims it can give. But the warning comes. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil. In particular, the parents here in Proverbs have in mind the idea of financial gain at the expense of others, maybe even at the expense of the lives of others. But we can apply it in all kinds of other ways as well. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil. Notice the love of money. Money in itself is in a sense neutral. It's no sin if you're a wealthy person, provided you've gained that wealth honestly as some of the men and women of scripture had done, believers of scripture had done, but it's loving wealth, pursuing it at all costs, living for its allure, living for that thrill of getting more for yourself. That is evil. And of course it's not just with money that Satan and the world will try to entice us. We thought about this at length last week, as we considered the temptations of the Lord Jesus, Day by day, friends, we are surrounded in this world by by the siren calls of Satan. Remember that old myth of the sirens, these supposedly beautiful creatures, the, the appearance of beautiful women enticing the sailors, calling out to the sailors, just such a beautiful cry, and then ultimately the sailors are dashed on the rocks. And as soon as we open our phones or drive down the street tomorrow, the siren calls start. Here is lust dressed up as natural attraction. Here is greed, dressed up as savvy business dealings. Here's disobedience to our parents, boys and girls, dressed up as a bit of fun with our mates or doing what we think is best because our parents just don't understand. (coughs) What's the answer? How do we resist the peer pressure and the siren calls of the world? The writers told us already, the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord. We have to be more concerned to honor God. We have to be more concerned about his opinion than the opinion of anybody else. Remember Peter's response when the church first had to face the authorities for their preaching in Jerusalem. The apostles were called in by the Jewish leaders. Acts 5.29, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. And that applies, boys and girls, when your peers are putting pressure on you to do or to say or to go to places that you know your parents would say, if sinners entice you, do not go. That applies older men and women as well this evening, when we hear the call and allure of the world. God's opinion, God's will must matter more. It mattered more to the apostles. It must matter more to us when we hear the call of the world tomorrow. So the call of the world. Let's think secondly then about the call of wisdom. The call of wisdom. And this is chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. Look at verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. The setting of the book of Proverbs is often the, the street or the city gates And as you maybe know from Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, well, in the New Testament as well, the city gates were just where people came and went. Everyone obviously had to pass through the city gates. It was also where big decisions might be made, the elders might meet. You think of Boaz meeting, uh, meeting to to sort out things in the the Book of Ruth, or kings sometimes sat at the city gates as well. And so this is the place where people are coming and going. This is the place where perhaps discussions and debates are had. This is the place where the culture is being shaped. There's also the idea here of the city streets, just where the ordinary men and women are coming and going. Maybe buying what they need for the week, getting their loaf of bread for the day, uh, going about their daily lives, meeting each other for a chat. And that's where wisdom is. Again, wisdom in the the scriptures, it's, it's not... It's not academic. It's, it's not that you have to go off to university and get more degrees than Fahrenheit to become a wise person, according to the Scriptures. It's not off in some ivory tower. It's on the street corner. It's available to us. It's within our reach. And wisdom here is pictured as a woman lifting up her voice above all the other clamoring voices in the streets. And she has a warning for the fool. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? How long? The implication of those words is, it's been too long already. For too long already, you've been taking delight in deliberately ignoring the knowledge and the wisdom of God. I was saying last week that we live in the information age that More than ever before, we can find answers to questions. We can find out in a split second what's happening in any part of the world almost. And that has its uses. But in fact, friends, there's an awful lot that we don't actually need to know. There's a lot of news reported that isn't true at all. As one man once said, whether he was a wise man or not, but he said it's fake news. There is fake news in the world. And a lot of the information that we do have or that we go searching for every day is trivial. It's speculative. It doesn't really matter. Again, like I said last week, do we, do we remember half the time, half the stuff we Googled even a day or two ago? But wisdom is calling out here because foolish people have deliberately ignored the most important news. That news comes in verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold... I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Now, you read something like that, and we immediately begin to think, that sounds an awful lot like God speaking about life in Christ. And insofar as we see wisdom here offered to people, uh, insofar as we see God offering to pour out his spirit on foolish people, ultimately, friends, we do see here in a picture, in in a If you like, a shadowy Old Testament form, the offer of the gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ, we know from the New Testament, who pours out his Spirit. It's Jesus Christ who anoints us with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We'll, We'll talk more about this when we get a little bit further into Proverbs. There's a huge debate in the commentators about this whole idea of the personification of wisdom. There's the added complicating factor that it's often personified as a woman. And the question is, are we we reading here of, of Jesus Christ or not? But ultimately, insofar as wisdom is offered to men and women, insofar as we read here of the Holy Spirit being poured out, we are right to think immediately as New Testament believers of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, after all, is the wisdom of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.24, in him, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, says Paul. And of course, John famously says in chapter one of his gospel, the word, the wise words of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so wisdom here is offered on the streets, at the city gates. And doesn't that just remind us of exactly what we considered this morning? Of Jesus who came and began to what? Preach on the street corners of Capernaum, at the lakeside of Galilee, in the synagogue of Nazareth, where the ordinary people were going, coming and going each and every day. And Jesus told scoffers to repent of their scoffing and simple ones to repent of being simple and fools to repent of rejecting God. The call of wisdom, friends, is the call to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as we also saw this morning, it's a call that the world often rejects. If you look here at verse 25, chapter 1, verse 25, it says, Fools and simple people have ignored all of wisdom's counsel, all of God's words. Ignorance is bliss for some people. If I just ignore it, it'll go away. If I just don't think about God and try to live as good a person as I can be and not do anyone any harm, everything will be okay. Is that how you're living this evening? Proverbs says that's foolish. Foolish definition of a fool in the Bible is not someone who doesn't know as many facts as most other people. A fool in the Bible is the one who acts as though there is no God to whom they are accountable. No God who has spoken to them and revealed himself to them. That's why you have men like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking, some of the most gifted, intelligent men of their generation, coming out with some of the most utterly foolish statements about the Bible and God and creation and Christ. In a world where we're now encouraged to speak your truth and my truth, to define reality, however it suits us, somehow the truth, God's truth, is the only ridiculous truth. Or it's treated as such. This is sinful unbelief. This is the suppression of truth, as I mentioned earlier, that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, that sinners know God has made them, They know God will judge them. It's written on our consciences. It's obvious from the created world. But we suppress the truth. We're like little toddlers just stubbornly ignoring the parents' warnings, hoping it will go away. This is foolishness. And we learn here that foolishness will be punished, if not in this life, then in the life to come. Look at Proverbs one twenty-five. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Look also at verse 28. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but not find me. Various interpretations given of these words, Charles Bridges says, it is possible for a sinner to be lost this side of hell. What he means is that if, if the fool simply does not turn, continues in ignorance and mockery of God, then even in this life, at a time unknown to us from a human perspective, there could be that moment when God decides you've had your chance. You've heard the gospel for the last time. You've had your last opportunity to repent and there will not be another. But the other way to think of this passage is perhaps to think of it with that eternal perspective, that in hell where fools are headed, the complacency of fools destroys them, verse 32. It says in verse 28, they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but not find me. We might ask, in what sense will those who are in hell call upon God? Well, the answer is, friends, that those who are in hell, while they have no desire to repent, even in hell, people don't want to repent, but nonetheless, they have a strong desire to be freed from their torment, to be freed from the consequences of their sin. They don't regret their sin in the sense that they're not sorry for it, but they also don't want the consequences of it. <coughs> you think of the rich man in the parable that Jesus told. In Luke chapter 16, he said he was in agony in this flame. He didn't say he was sorry for his sin. He just said he was in agony. He wanted delivered. But there is no opportunity. The fool who dies in sin goes to an eternity of not being heard and not being answered and not being relieved. Part of the misery of hell will be the mockery of God. Wisdom calls out with strong words, words of rebuke for those who have been ignoring, perhaps even mocking the truth of God. Don't be a fool. Don't just think if I ignore God, he'll go away. Heed his word. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your foolish ways before it's too late. So we thought about the call of the world, the, th- the call of wisdom, thirdly and finally, the benefits of wisdom. If we heed, if we listen to the call of wisdom, what, what blessings or benefits do we gain? Well, in chapter 2, we have another speech. The whole chapter is one long sentence in Hebrew, and it's a conditional sentence. It's saying that if certain conditions are met, then certain benefits will be given. Boys and girls, you've maybe heard that sort of talk in your house. If you tidy your room, then we'll go out for lunch somewhere that you like. The condition, if you tidy the room, the benefit, we'll go out for lunch to your favorite place. And Proverbs chapter 2 uses that language. Look at verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, look down at verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And so verses one to four set out the conditions for blessing and the conditions are treasure up God's word, love God's word, meditate upon it, prioritize it, and then the benefits will flow. Look at verse one, if you treasure up my commandments, verse two, if you are attentive to wisdom, verse three, if you call out for insight, verse four, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Imagine a miner, someone working down in the depths of a, of a coal mine. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a coal mine. I have no desire to go into one. I'm afraid my claustrophobia wouldn't do too well. But imagine someone down in the depths of a mine, digging and digging and digging, until they see something glinting and sparkling. They sweat, they work, they persist until they have the treasure in their hands. That's what we're to do with God's word. We are to mine it for its wisdom, for its blessing, for its benefits. There are great benefits to be had in living a wise life, but this is what we must do to enjoy those benefits. We must treasure and love and work to better know and understand God's word. And if we do that, chapter 2 mentions various blessings that will come our way. Verse 7, we will be shielded by God. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. This is military language, of course, the language of a shield. Military language is used quite a bit in the opening chapters of the book. Uh, And and so we're being reminded here that this whole idea of pursuing wisdom, it's not trivial. We're in a spiritual war. We need to be shielded by the wisdom of God. Verse 8 says, God will be watching over the way of his saints. The word saints there means people who have a covenantal relationship with God. People who fear the Lord. And so if we gain wisdom, if we pay attention to God's wisdom, it will shield us. It will, it will help us. When that onslaught of pressures and siren sounds from the, word, from the world come upon us, we have the wisdom of God to shield us. I thought about that last week again with the Lord Jesus and his temptations from Satan. We'll be shielded by God. Another benefit, we will see sin more readily for what it is. If we're treasuring God's word, if we're loving God's word, we will see sin for what it is. Look at verse 11. Again, if you treasure God's word, then, verse 11, discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. As a Christian treasures up the word of God, we will increasingly see through sin. We will increasingly have what you might call prudence or or savvy or... Uh, there's, another, there's a word that's uh, escaping me just now, but discernment, discernment. We'll more readily see the traps of Satan and the world that, uh, as the, before they're even set. And the wisdom of God will help us to skirt around those traps. This is not to say, of course, that we don't still fall into sin to our, uh, to our, to our sadness. We, we, we still do. But we should be avoiding sin more, more regularly and more often. If we're treasuring God's word, if we've fallen for Satan's lies once, we shouldn't be falling for them again so easily in future. We will see sin for what it is. We won't just laugh along with our friend's foolishness. We won't just celebrate the things that the world celebrates. We will see those things for the foolishness that they are. Another blessing of treasuring the wisdom of God, we will be delivered from evil. Verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Wisdom is described as a woman in Proverbs. There's another woman though in Proverbs and that is the adulteress or the, the foreign woman as some of the translations have it. The call of the world is ultimately the call to unfaithfulness to God. And unfaithfulness to God is sometimes described in terms of marital unfaithfulness, like a spouse being unfaithful to the other. But Proverbs is also, friends, quite often, quite regularly, quite literally, warning us about the sin of adultery. The Christian life is supposed to be a holy life, a different life. We don't find everything funny that the world finds funny. We don't spend all our time or money the way the world spends its time or its money. We're to take seriously the fact that the world is trying to lure us like an adulteress into sin and foolishness. And there's a trend among young Christians in particular in our nation today, which says you can be a Christian and pretty much live and talk and act like the rest of the world most of the time how we spend our Sundays, what kind of clothes we wear, how we treat our bodies. As long as you're a Christian, the rest is up to you. No. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're not to act as though the Christian life is all benefits and no responsibilities. Growing in wisdom means we don't even want to risk falling into sin. It's not that we just dance along the cliff edge, thinking that we'll be all right. We stay several feet back from the cliff edge on the path that God has laid out for us because we fear the Lord, because his opinion matters more to us than the opinions of our friends or social media or whoever else it may be. And so we gain the wisdom not to pass on that tidbit of gossip. To get up and go to bed rather than flick through channels or keep on scrolling on the phone. To not go to the places where other people are acting, we know, in foolish ways. As we grow in wisdom, we will be delivered from evil. And the last benefit to highlight of knowing wisdom and gaining wisdom, we will enter the promised land. We will enter the promised land. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inherit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. There were times in the history of God's people when they didn't walk as they should. And of course, that's seen particularly in the generation, the first generation that came out of the land of Egypt, who never actually got to enter into the promised land because of what? Because of their foolishness, because of their idol worship, and because of their failure to believe the word of God, that he would be with them when they crossed the border, that he would give them victory over their enemies. And so they missed out on inheriting the promised land. But if we are faithful to God's word, if we receive the wisdom of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if the fear of the Lord is our priority in life, then we're headed for real life, for everlasting life, for our promised land, that glorious new heavens and new earth that we thought about in the book of Revelation. The way of sin leads to death. The way of wisdom in Christ leads to life. Jesus himself said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He also came to call us away from the world and to make that call of wisdom. He personifies that call of wisdom when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so friends, tomorrow morning in your kitchen, in your living room, in your car, in your workplace, two paths will be laid out before you. There will be on one path the world calling to you. On the other path, there will be Christ, wisdom, calling to you. Which way are you going to go? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Amen.